I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Rimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. <laughs> Sorry. Every week Agnes laughs at this. I'm just so enthusiastic. It's because Ben Ben puts his arms out in a full sort of embrace every time he says welcome back to Undercurrents because that's how he feels. Yeah, I about just feel enthused to be everybody. back in the studio, back talking about our favourite things. Yeah. So, Agnes, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Yeah, I'm all good, I'm all good. I'm very excited about today's episode. Yeah, we've done a joint interview. Cracking interview, a joint, joint interview. interview. Yes, which doesn't happen too often, does it? Let's be fair. No. We've bucked the trend and we have got a really fascinating interview about Pakistan and documentary filmmaking. Agnes, who did we speak to? So this week we spoke to Mohammed uh, Nagvi, who is a Pakistani-American filmmaker, documentary maker, award-winning, mm. about his latest documentary, which is actually going to be shown on BBC4 on the 2nd of March. After that, will be on iPlayer, so yeah. you can watch this. Recommend when, a watch. We're not talking about something that you can't see. Uh, it's called The Accused, Damned or Devoted. And he spent, what, a year and a half filming with various important people, as you're, mm-hmm. you're yeah. here. The level of access was kind of amazing, wasn't it? The people yeah. that he was able to speak to about this. Mm. A- absolutely, as he will go on to explain. But I started off by asking him um, to sort of fill us in a bit on basically what, what this latest documentary is about. So this week we're here with Mohammed Nakvi, who is a Pakistani-American filmmaker, to talk about his latest documentary, which will receive its first UK broadcast on BBC4 on March the 2nd. Um, and it's called The Accused, Damned or Devoted. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. So Ben is here too. Because Hello. <laughs> because we're doing a, a joint... We're so excited by this. We're doing We've not a done a joint interview. interview for a while. We haven't. And this is such an exciting and interesting topic that I'm sorry, Mohammed, you've, you've got both of us. Um, <laughs> could you give us a quick, a quick overview of what your latest documentary is about? Uh, so back in 2017, I was approached by uh, Storyville and, uh, to make a documentary broadly on the blasphemy laws in Pakistan. And for your uh, listeners, if you guys are not familiar with the blasphemy law, basically um, the blasphemy law uh, in Pakistan uh, has several different uh, uh, sections to it, but the main important one uh, that gets the most attention worldwide is that if you in any way blaspheme or uh, diminish the honor of the prophet, then you can actually be put to death. And if you desecrate the Quran, you can get life imprisonment. Uh, and, and so it's it's a really hot-button issue in Pakistan. And, and people in Pakistan, the majority of them, actually support this law. And any people in the past who have tried to uh, rescind the law, uh, you know, lessen its bite or even make amendments have met with disastrous consequences. For example, uh, the Salman Tassir, who's the governor of Punjab, uh, was murdered uh, for standing up for uh, Asia Bibi, a minority Christian woman, one of the first women in Pakistan to be given the death penalty uh, for blaspheming. Ultimately, that convention was overturned in 2018 uh, and upheld by judicial review in 2019. But 
at that time and it was a famous case. The point is there's huge, massive pushback. In fact, some if you're accused of blasphemy in Pakistan, you're as good as dead in some cases. You don't even get to go to court. And so when I was approached to make a film on this and looking at the blasphemy law from like a critical uh, eye, I was like, oh, no way. I have family in Pakistan. Yeah. <laughs> I live there. I don't want to, you know. But um, then several months went by and um, I found myself witnessing something very strange that happened in November of 2017. The Pakistani parliament uh, made change to the electoral oath, the language of it. And it was kind of interpreted uh, widely, especially by political parties on the right, as relaxing um, the references to Islam and essentially relaxing the blasphemy law. And there was an immediate pushback, and it was led by this extreme right religious party uh, called the Tariqe Lekbek Pakistan, or the TLP. And it was led by um, this really charismatic uh, cleric, Khadim Hussain Rizvi. And he essentially got the entire city, our capital Islamabad, to shut down and got the law minister to resign, got the parliament to rescind this uh, legislation they had passed. And uh, they even got some reparations, money, essentially, from the government asking for apology. And I happened to be in Islamabad at that time. And so I witnessed this firsthand. And I was like, I cannot believe that here is another instance where my government is essentially cowing down to bigots. And I was like, I just there's no way that this can happen. And so that is why I decided to kind of get involved and uh, make a film on this. What approach did you take with the film? How did you want to tell the story? Well, editorially, I had to be very, very strict, uh, almost brutally neutral. Mm. Uh, that was a tone that I had to, that was something clear that I even, though of course I have my own subjectivities and my own biases, as does anyone. But because... You know, I had to think about my subject's safety, my safety, my crew's safety. There was a lot at stake there. So, for example, if I approach this in the ways that many narratives or many documentaries would, where you tell essentially the persecuted or the victim's stories, um, then it could be seen as that I'm being implicitly more biased and in favor of the victims. And that could kind of put me in trouble. So a way around that was to actually focus on Khadim Hussain Rizvi, who was the the protagonist of my film. He's the cleric who is the head of this uh, political, religious political party that has the mandate uh, to protect the blasphemy law. And I told it from his perspective. And and at least that way, and I, you know, I'm in no way saying that I didn't show both sides. I certainly did. But I showed both sides as much as I could equally and depicted them as neutrally as possible. And uh, so that was very important uh, for safety concerns. And aside from that, just as a filmmaker, I mean, he's a very exciting person. He's a Bond villain. I mean, he literally, he's in a wheelchair and he's like commanding like thousands of people. And, you know, as a filmmaker, you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. And then suddenly, I mean, quote, unquote, he's a star for a documentary. Like he, he really is. He's so funny. And 
he's of course psychotic, <laughs> scary as hell. But you know, so I kind of you know decided to work and follow him and and, and uh, do that. And was he up for it? You know, was it dif- was it difficult gaining access to him, or was he sort of pro the project as well? So my last three films, actually, I've made it a point, and it's just always the case, but it's kind of ended up happening, where I try to tell the story from the persecutor, from the traditional antagonist. Mm. And and there's a reason that I do that. I mean, A, if in this case it's security concerns. B, you know, I am a filmmaker of color, and although I've settled now in New York and I've been working there and I mostly make films for a Western audience, uh, whether it's European broadcasters or American broadcasters, I was lucky enough that I started making, I, first, I made my first film right after 9-11 in, in uh, 2002. I was, I was lucky that I got that chance to do so at such a young age and tell stories from my part of the world. What didn't sit right with me eventually as I made more and more films was that I kind of felt a little bit that there was a power dynamic that was very off mm-hmm. in the sense that if I was showing you stories of victims from my country and then I was this filmmaker privileged from a more anglicized uh, background, the power differential was way off. Mm-hmm. So even though I had their complete consent and everything, was, there was a total informed consent, I just always felt a little weird about it, you know, that I kind of felt that, well, I'm glad I'm sharing their story and I'm able to do that, but then I I just felt uncomfortable that I had too much, I, I could have too much influence over them. And then there was another component where I was like, am I essentially making poverty porn <laughs> for the West? Right. And listen, I'm not saying that anything I've done is it's so binary. It's not. I think at the end of the day, any filmmaker will probably tell you that probably does keep them up at night. Am I making poverty porn? Am I exploiting these people just for, like, making, you know, um, thoughtful millennials who listen, go to chat and let us feel good about themselves? <laughs> I don't know. You know That's I'm a bit just, on the nose. Absolute burn for Ben and I there. <laughs> I'm just but totally no, kidding. No, no, anyway. no, absolutely fair enough. Or, but as a second token... Yes, obviously, I'm also amplifying the voice of the voiceless, Mm -hmm. and I'm giving them a platform and hopefully bringing attention to their story. So both of those things are equally important. So a way to kind of fix that was like, well, why don't I just follow the antagonist? Because they're more powerful than me in certain circumstances. I don't feel I'm exploiting them. And, you know, they tend to be narcissists, as was the case with this cleric. He loves the camera. And he's great at front of the camera. <laughs> so at that time, he was getting a lot of publicity. But the difference was obviously the level of access. And that is something that kind of came over time because we have long production periods. And uh, I was working, I, I, I'd be remiss not to mention, I was working with an incredible crew that has worked with me on several of my projects. And on this, I had two co-producers, uh, Sayyid Musharraf Shah and Mosul Abbas. And then I also had other uh, field producers. And we never spent way too much time with any one segment of the story or one character, Khadim Sanuzvi, because we kept on switching off, um, uh, again, because of security and precautions. We had a huge crew that way. And and so that at least uh, gave us access to him. We were kind of strategically planned 
how many days we will actually film with him spread out over a long period of time. Right. Mm-hmm. And how, how long was that period? Sorry, just how long did uh, it I think uh, with him specifically, it was about a year and a half or so. Wow, yeah. that's a really long time. Yeah, yeah but it was it was uh, how many days within that year and a half was probably yeah. like a, like a week or between like 10 to 14 days or something like that. Yeah. But like just really specifically spread out. Mm-hmm. Did you find that over time you came to understand more about where he was coming from? If you spend that much time with you, with who you perceive to begin with to be the antagonist. Yeah. I get why he has so much support. Right. He runs on a very populist platform and he has so much support because all our politicians are corrupt and they serve the elite. And so the vast majority of the country... Pakistan is not obviously it's, it's 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 a poor country and we have a lot of uh, you know developmental issues and stuff. So the vast majority, he was this charismatic guy mm. who was pushing for an Islamic socialist state, yep. and so that narrative was very popular to everyone. Second of all, I can I can totally respect his devotion for the Prophet and for many Muslims who uh, you know. Uh, love the Prophet. I mean, I'm a Muslim too. I obviously respect the Prophet, and uh, I don't want to blaspheme or anything like this either. Of course not. The problem was that here we had once again this kind of despotic, bigoted guy mm. speaking for all Muslims, imposing his viewpoints, and that was a huge issue because I'm like, no, I'm not going to let this person represent my faith, or I'm not going to let this person take our country into some other direction. Because I don't know if you guys have seen the film. I also featured, obviously, other characters in there, Muslims themselves, who were pushing back hard against him. And I think those are the voices and stories that I also want to empower and choose to empower in my stories. I I also had a question about who the audience was for this piece of work. It's being broadcast on the BBC, and I just wondered whether you see this as something that is basically for a kind of Western, in inverted commas, audience, or whether you hope or want it to be something that is seen and discussed in Pakistan itself. That is the ideal. Obviously, I would love to show this in Pakistan and have it discussed in Pakistan. I don't know how realistic that is, given the fact that my previous films have been banned there, and this is a film that, frankly... Well, I'll give you an interesting anecdote. Um, there was a film called Zindagi Tamasha, a fiction feature film, The Circus of Life. And it was in competition at the Busan Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And in Korea, it's a pretty reputable film festival. And then it was supposed to be released in Pakistan theatrically. So the film censor board passed it twice, no issues, provincial and federal. And the ad for the film came out. And there was this one little section in the trailer in which the antagonist uh, of the film, who's this cleric, basically threatens the main protagonist of the film that if he doesn't, you know, get in line or something, he implies that he's going to charge him with blasphemy charges and makes his life hell. It was just, there was no blasphemy, it was just an implication. So Rizvi and the TLP party uh, made this whole hoopla and went out onto the streets, protested, and essentially 
made the government rescind its certificate and the film censor, uh, and they said that we're going to ban this film again. And now they're going to have Rizvi sit in on the film censorship board to kind of review films, which is insane. So given that he's Mm. on the censorship board, I don't know if he'd like pass my film since it's like about him. But you said he He might actually. He might. Exactly. He might. I don't know. So maybe. So without going on to this tangent, my point is, I, I don't know. I'd love for it to be shown there. I don't know how realistic that is given my other films and those also being banned in Pakistan. But otherwise, it's showing here in the UK and other countries all over Europe. It's being broadcast, hopefully eventually the States and uh, other other countries. And it's going to be playing in festivals and having like small uh, theatrical releases in, in different places. Uh, for example, we're going to be showing tomorrow at the Bloomsbury Curzon. And so if anyone's at London, please come see it at 6.30 tomorrow. I don't know how uh, realistic it is for it to be shown in Pakistan. It would be amazing. And I think like my other films, we have, even the banned ones, we have shown it in Pakistan, but they're always done in like ad hoc private screenings throughout the the cities. And that doesn't make me unique. There are a lot of films like that in Pakistan that certainly do. One audience that I would like to get this story out to, and it's kind of important, are a lot of the Pakistani and Muslim expats that live in in the UK right. and mm-hmm. the Asians here, or even in, in Europe and whatever. I think this is very important because it actually shows what is happening in context uh, back home in Pakistan. Uh, there are certainly stories of Islamophobia and stuff that exist outside of Pakistan, but in Pakistan, this, in a way, is also an Islamophobic story. You have this uh, crazy despot, and he is using Islam as a veneer, as a political mask to gain votes. And that's pretty atrocious. And so he needs to be stopped, and we need to hold him accountable. Do you believe that documentaries can make those big changes? You know, is that is that the point of raising these stories because as you say you're you're filming the sort of the bad guys <laughs> um you're not raising awareness of what well, you you're raising awareness of a, of a bigger story but you're not sort of focusing on um the victims for the interesting reason you said before but you know so is that is that the purpose of why you make films well i think all of my stories do feature the victims narratives as well yeah of course uh it's just that in a traditional doc you would maybe see more of the victim narrative rather than just the oppressor. In this, I try to give equal footing to both. So the victim stories are there. I can't say on like a on a general wide scale, but I've I have seen just from my own personal experience what my films have been able to accomplish. And I wouldn't say just my film, but my film has been uh, somewhat of a catalyst in that process of some some uh, some social change. So, for example. I did a film for Channel 4 back in 2014 called Pakistan's Hidden Shame. The title is horrible, but as you know, uh, with British broadcasters, they get to choose the title. The movie was about street children in Peshawar, which is a, uh, a city in the north of Pakistan, and how they were victims of just the most grueling sexual abuse, and they were addicted to drugs, and it was just one of the most difficult films I've ever worked. I mean, worked on. I, I was following children from the ages of eight to thirteen who were prostituting themselves, 
and were um, addicted to heroin and it was just it was just a really traumatic experience ever making that film one uh, by far one of the most difficult films that I've ever made anyway so when that film came out the government of Pakistan um, especially the province of KPK which is the the northern province where Peshawar is they took notice and they built a a series of street shelter homes called Zamankor or Arland uh, for the street children and boys. And it was, and it was primarily attributed to uh, the documentary, my documentary. So I felt pretty good about that. Mm-hmm. So there was certainly, that's an instance. And then there was another instance, for example, uh, where I did a film called Shame. Um, at this point, several years back, it was my second film, like 12 years ago. And it was... Um, featuring the story of women's rights icon Mukhtar and Mai. I don't know if many of your uh, audience might be familiar with her, but she's this really amazing woman from Pakistan who was unfortunately the the victim and then eventual survivor of sexual violence. And she uh, won an important civil rights case at that time, and she got all this... Uh, basically support from NGOs and financial support, commending her for her bravery. And what she did was she opened up schools and built an infrastructure in her uh, village from all that money. And she just transformed basically this entire village. Um, And I was lucky enough to actually profile her and follow her for four years while she did that. So that film, Shame, that I made, after it came out, I got some really big international NGOs to actually continue funding some of her schools. Uh, and so, anyway, I'm just kind of giving you specific examples of my work where I have been able to use documentaries to do that. And do you think the power of documentaries has has maybe changed? In that, Do you think there's a bigger audience now than there, there has been in the past for, for documentaries? Oh, certainly. I think with all these like, streaming uh, channels and Netflix uh, and SVOD, uh, there are a lot more platforms for documentaries. People are, are a lot more interested. And the world has become smaller, right? So people are interested about stuff that's happening internationally. It's not just about things that are happening in their neck of the woods. And I think because of that, it, it really opens the audience. Yeah, and maybe just building on that and something that you said earlier. So this year we just had the Oscars yeah. and the mm-hmm. film that won Best Picture was... Parasite, right, which is the South Korean film. Is it that I think it's the first foreign language film to win an Oscar? To win Best Picture. To win Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting, there were debates afterwards around that I remember the director sort of coming out and talking about what it means to make things with subtitles and how actually the audience is becoming a lot more kind of accepting of that Mm -hmm. increasingly. I just wondered whether you had any reflections on that kind of debate. And also just I wondered if you could say a bit more about, as you mentioned earlier, your kind of experience as a as a filmmaker of colour. And how does that play out in in a sort of Anglo-American context? Well, uh, to comment on your first uh, uh, point, I I love Parasite. It was great. And it was amazing that that it won. I mean, that is so inspirational for so many young filmmakers and artists worldwide who do primarily make content or films in a different language. This is great. And I think the Academy changed its rules more recently where, you know, foreign films can be considered for Best Picture. From what I understand, I'm not 100% sure about this, I don't think they were allowed before 
to be submitted for Best Picture. I think there had to be specifically for... Oh, oh really? Because there, there, there has been the... I mean, and I think this year especially, but, you know, the film in a foreign language section, mm -hmm. which included more documentaries than it has done before, you know, for, for Salma, mm -hmm. um, which obviously has done amazingly well as well. But, yeah, I think, I think you're right. But I do think that was a few years ago, so... Yeah, in the know, last few years. It's not this year, definitely. No. But, yeah. So, so I think that's amazing. And film and cinema, as a, and whether it's Hollywood or even independent film or Bollywood or or even, um, you know, Nollywood or whatever, <laughs> there's so many. They have their own language and their own... There is a global cinema language and different tropes that I think we all have learned throughout the, the ages. And I think it's great that finally we are more accepting of subtitles and essentially people of different ethnicities and backgrounds. And the way that a trope becomes a trope is the more there's gatekeepers who allow that for, the, for that to happen. I don't think we're fully there yet in terms of diversity in Hollywood, but this is definitely a step in the right direction. And so that's great. Um, and so your second uh, part was um, just about your experience as a as a filmmaker of color in this in this environment that we're talking about. And... Uh, well, I also operate in a very specific niche, right? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I have done fiction films before, and I I want to hopefully return yeah. to that. But I kind of operate in the international uh, cinema arena, which sure. is like independent. Uh, films or so I don't necessarily just make I mean I make films for an international global audience um, that's what I aspire to do but of course even if I were to show my films back home in Pakistan they wouldn't be considered like mainstream because it's documentaries so documentaries are kind of their own specific kind of niche my experience is that what's great is that I can actually be a bridge into parts of my world or, or my country, or experiences that maybe not everyone gets to see. And I'm able to uh, show it firsthand and get access to those areas. So, for example, meeting with the clerics or, or even with my previous film where I followed the former dictator of Pakistan, General Musharraf, mm. actually having access to those, those spots and, and revealing those things from a more personal, intimate perspective. But then there's also obviously the cons in that. And then, you know, these are already like long-winded debates, but whatever, um, is that I am like anyone from any country or I'm not Mr. Pakistan mm. or Mr. Islam. Right. Yeah. And I always feel uncomfortable being a sole representative because each one of these groups is as diverse as, you know, as anything. And there's all sorts of voices and they all deserve their own platform and whatnot. Um, I think there is an inherent danger in just having one person represent an entire group. What I am lucky about is that for many years, I feel that there was a specific kind of person representing, let's say, Pakistan or, or wherever you were from. And that was ultimately also decided by a Western gaze. Mm. 
And that was problematic because yeah. it kind of regurgitated an Orientalist narrative. And now I'm lucky enough that I can come in and be part of a group of filmmakers or writers or whomever mm. to actually start breaking those. Yeah. You know? And that's really cool that I can actually do that and be a part of that. The other thing is that, don't get me wrong, I love the topics that I that I do. Ultimately, even if I always say, no, I don't want to do this, I kind of get drawn into telling those uh, stories again and again because the stakes are so high and there's such dramatic arcs there and they're important stories. So I almost sometimes feel it's my moral responsibility to kind of step in and tell those stories. But outside of that, I'd also like to do films outside of just, you know, terrorism and extremism and, you know, uh, honor killings. And th- I'm not I'm not in any way demonetizing these no. these these really important topics. They're not cheery, though, are they? No, they're not cheery. No. But, you know, so as a filmmaker of color, hey, there's other things I can do. And there's other things from my culture or my experiences that are universal that, you know, people can relate to even just on this so that's something that I wish um, I could delve more into or something on that note is there a topic that you'd really like to cover that you feel like you can't or there isn't the audience for and finally is there a documentary that you that changed the way that you viewed documentaries or made you want to become somebody who produced documentaries you know what was what was the things that you were watching when you were growing up that really had a huge impact on you gosh i mean growing up we used to uh, get a lot of uh, basically um so documentaries were thought of as just current affairs pieces and all of that which was not the case but at that time when i was growing up in the in the 90s uh, there was a lot of um, HBO America undercover okay. uh, documentaries. There was like these kind of salacious docs, and then there was like Rikers Island, which kind of blew my mind, and all of that. And we would get them in Pakistan, just um, on I guess people who had like gone to the states, recorded whatever they wanted on VHS, and were circulating that. So those earlier things really, really uh, got me so interested. Yeah, and there were. There was the obvious salaciousness of it, and, you know, some people would say, well, this is just, you know, junk food or whatever. But but the the way the stories were approaching, like John Alpert, I think at that time, was an amazing uh, director working with HBO, where it was cinema verite, yeah. and it was actually happening in front of you. That blew my mind, and I was like, I totally want to do this. So, yeah, so there was that. What is a topic that I'd like to uh, speak about next? I've kind of reached this point in my career, and I'm, by the way, still working on on other documentaries, is that I question the form of documentaries from an ethical standpoint. And this is something that's been quite prevalent in the last uh, 10 years. I, I might actually do an effect change and do good, and that's fine. That's great. But then I'm also... It's impossible to be truly, truly objective, in any, in anything, and in documentary, that's the thing. How much of a moral responsibility do I have? Where where it is feature documentaries, and feature documentaries are constructed, and even some of the greats like Werner Herzog says the form has changed. Mm-hmm. It's not current affairs. If you're in the current affairs thing, that's a very different, uh, you know, parameters that are set there for uh, your the story that you're telling. 
but because there's an implicit understanding, unlike when you're watching a reality show, that this is reality, then many, many filmmakers, and I'm not saying that they're wrong either, do break those rules and conventions. And how cool or ethical is that? And how can we at least convey to an audience that that is actually happening? Or or, or, or is the audience themselves aware of that trope, that that does happen in this form of documentaries, you know, where mm. timelines can be altered mm. or, or things like this? Well, Mo, thank you so much. That's been really interesting. Thank you. Well, I just found that so fascinating. Yeah, I hope everyone at home listening also found it as interesting <laughs> as we did. Um, it was just so cool to talk about so many different things in one interview. I liked his uh, his sick burn on on some of our Chatham House oh, listeners. Yeah. Thoughtful millennials. Thoughtful millennials. Thoughtful millennial audience. Well, Hands just, up if you're a thoughtful yeah, millennial. Sorry, um, got a room full of them. Yes, but, but I mean, yeah, and burn the, aside. And the difficulties <laughs> he personally has faced or especially his quandaries around, you know, as a... As an American Pakistani, if he's showing the plight of the underdogs, is he is he using people? Is yeah. he you know? It's a really interesting set of mm. questions he people are asking, having to ask themselves about. And it's something we see across, like not just art, but also all sorts of different you know, like civil society and NGOs and Absolutely. stuff. Is like obviously these issues are so important. Yeah, they need raising awareness. But at what point does your activity in raising awareness of these problems become exploitative of the people you're trying to help? Yeah, even though How do you you're garnering attention that? for them and stuff, like, are you... Yeah, yeah that, that question... The about, ends don't always justify the means. Exactly. Just because there's goodwill there doesn't necessarily mean you're not being, yeah, abusive in some ways. Exactly. But that means... People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do... Um, have a watch of the documentary, which is on BBC Four from the 2nd of March. And again, it's called The Accused, Damned or Devoted. So do have a watch. Uh, I know that he's trying to get a US release. So the more that w- people that watch it in the UK, the better. Absolutely. And so we're going to leave you now. That's it for Undercurrents this week. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. We haven't asked for a while, but we should have done. Um, if you could rate or review us on iTunes, if you could tell your friends um, to have a listen and to subscribe to us, it all helps our numbers and it lets other people find us more easily. Yep. And uh, if you need more content from Chatham House generally, apart from our dulcet tones once every two weeks, then you can follow us on Twitter at Chatham House yep. and listen to any of our other podcast series, Independent Thinking and The Climate Briefing. In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Rimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.